Hello and welcome to the Dorkamoto Podcast with Brian Lone. This is the place where we talk about mechanical history, cool inventions, racing, and all the great stuff that gearheads love. On this episode, we're going to tell the story of the Max Super Pumper System, the most powerful land-based fire engine ever built, and how it served New York City for nearly 20 years, extinguishing some of the city's worst blazes. Let's get into the history and the engineering of a firefighting apparatus strong enough to extinguish hell itself, and often did. This is the story of the Max Super Pumper. I'm your host, Brian Loans, editor-in-chief of Bankshift.com, Anytran Fox, drag racing guy, and uh, general gearhead historian, amateur hour fan. That's me, in a nutshell. Thanks for tuning in, and this show is going to be a little bit different than the first two episodes we've had because uh, we're switching gears a little bit. Told some racing stories in the background of those racing stories here. We're going to go into an arena that I truly love, which is unique machines, and unique machines that kind of solve problems are a favorite uh, topic of mine, a favorite historical topic of mine. And this particular machine we're going to talk about, which is the Max Super Pumper System, is one of the greatest examples of this uh, ever created. And what it is is the most powerful firefighting apparatus ever built. It employed the engine from a locomotive. It employed a pump that could move uh, 10,000 gallons of water a minute at 700 PSI. And from 1965 into the early 1980s, it was a way for the New York City Fire Department to fight fires in a way that they never had the ability to do. And what we need to do to set this up is we need to tell a couple of different stories before we get to the actual bones of the unit and get to the actual kind of construction of what would be, you know, the greatest firefighting truck of all time and the greatest firefighting truck system of all time because it was more than just one truck. So what we need to do is figure out why this thing needed to exist, and then we need to talk about who designed it in the first place. So... To get things kicked off, uh, we need to talk about the the impetus for actually coming up with this concept. And um, the the short answer is what we're going to give first, and that is uh, on April 20th, 1963, there was an incredible fire on Staten Island. It is called, to this day, it's referred to as Black Saturday. And it was uh, a, a typical spring day. This was Easter weekend of 1963. It was a Saturday. Uh, Easter Sunday would be the next day. And it was a very windy day, about 50-mile-an-hour winds blowing across Staten Island. And a small brush fire started at one part of, the, uh, one part of Staten Island, and the winds blew it. Now, other fires started as a result of this, and they all kind of grew together in this one massive um, conflagration. It destroyed 100 houses, uh, made 500 people homeless, and uh, did $2 million worth of damage in 1963 money, which is, uh, if we use inflation, uh, close to $100 million worth of damage if we look at what today's, uh, what today's value of what happened is in 1963 versus 2019. And um, the, the big problem was not the fact that these were high-rise buildings, because we're talking about Staten Island, which at the time was kind of a, it was a residential, heavily wooded area, hence the brush fires. And the problem became water availability. There had been a drought in New York about this time, and the firemen that responded to this, which was almost every available unit in the city, plus units brought in from New Jersey, um, simply couldn't get water. They would hook up to hydrants, and there would be nothing. Nothing would be coming out of them. Uh, volunteer firemen, regular citizens were, were pitching in to try to help stop this, and everybody was kind of powerless. Um, the headline in the newspaper the day after the fire was, Even the Firemen Cried, was what the headline was, because there are multiple stories of able-bodied, ready, willing, and able, brave firemen standing and just watching these fires consume homes and businesses and neighborhoods um, and they could do nothing because there was no water. 
Um, they they would again hook to hydrants. Nothing would happen. The pumper trucks weren't strong enough to pull it from further from further locations. The firemen had locations that they would use, kind of uh, cisterns, remote you know ponds. They could drop a line in, run a pumper truck, and spray the fire. But those had basically dried up because of the drought. So when this was all said and done, there was a big study done by the by the, the fire commission and by the city of New York to figure out exactly what could be done to remedy this problem. And they came up with the response of, we got to do something, but we don't quite know what. And thankfully, there was a guy who knew what to do. And there was a guy who had this, this idea in his head for almost 50 years. And he had tried to pitch it to the city way back in the like, 1910, 1920 time frame. And it was frankly way too far ahead of its time at that point. But when Black Saturday happened, this particular man said, now is the time. I know how to fix this problem. I know that I can help the city of New York and help people fare better in terms of fire response. That man's name is William Francis Gibbs, someone you've probably never heard of, but someone who has played an integral role in the history of the United States over the course of the second half of the 20th century. And for William Francis Gibbs, I told you we're going to give you the short version of the story why this machine needed to exist. Now I'm going to give you the longer version because William Francis Gibbs saw this whole thing in his head decades before it actually got built. And I'm going to tell you why he saw it and how he saw it into completion. So William Francis Gibbs was uh, a genius by any measure of uh, human achievement. The guy was born in 1886, died in 1967. So we got to see a lot of his own handiwork, I guess we'd say, uh, into fruition. Not just the stuff that he did with the Max Super Pumper system, but we're going to talk about the other things that he accomplished in his life. Um, to understand how smart this guy was, he went to Harvard, went to private school. He's from a fairly wealthy family, goes to Harvard. And leaves Harvard without a degree. Kind of interestingly, he took a bunch of design and engineering classes, but for whatever reason, as many genius people figure out school, eh, maybe not their strongest point. Well, his dad sent him to law school, which he aced. He had graduated out of law school, and as a deal or bargain with his dad for having sent him, paid for him to go to law school, his dad made him practice law for a couple years. And that would actually come in handy a little bit down the road for Gibbs, but he practices law for a couple years and um, kind of, you know, masters that trade and goes on to the next thing, which for him was an obsession with naval architecture. And Gibbs would become the most prolific naval architect of the back half of the 20th century and probably the most important naval architect in American history modern American history specifically. When he was at Harvard, one of the reasons he didn't do so well is because he would sit in his room and just study inch by inch the blueprints of British battleships and British naval ships from his era. So about World War World War One or so when he was in college, um, he was studying these designs and kind of learning about exactly what was going on with the British ships. They had the greatest navy in the world and were very advanced in their ship design. Now when we get to World War II, um, you know, even before World War II, he was very active in naval design. He designed ocean liners and had done a bunch of work for different uh, ocean liner companies. But when we talk about what he did in World War II, you'll understand the brilliance of this man. So um, during World War II, between 40 and 46, 1940 and 1946, 63% of all the merchant ships built by the United States, 2,000 tons and up, were of his design. 
The naval vessels, this is even more impressive, 74% of all American naval vessels, we're talking destroyers, landing craft, escort carriers, etc., were built to the designs of William Francis Gibbs. And that is, um, that is a man who helped us win World War II, quite frankly. And we're talking about the Liberty ships as well. Henry Kaiser became famous for building the Liberty ships. They would build them at incredible speed. They were modular construction. They were building them faster than they could be sunk. But the man who designed those ships, who came up with the idea of the modular construction, who came up with the idea of this durable, yet cheap to produce, yet high volume ship, was Gibbs. And um, he had a legitimate role in helping win World War II. His crowning achievement outside of, I mean, my opinion, his crowning achievement is the Max Super Pumper system, but his crowning achievement outside of that was the design of the SS United States. And the SS United States was an ocean liner, 1,000 feet long, cutting edge, and Gibbs got the United States government to pay for it. And this is where we really see how smart this guy is. So he wanted to build this ship with every kind of cutting edge, awesome technological engineering development he could think of he was from a young age for whatever reason kind of obsessed with the idea of uh, fire safety and um, this ship was designed with fire safety first and foremost there were very few flammable materials used in the construction of the ship which kind of brought the level of luxury down apparently some of the uh, more kind of uh, upper crust customers complained when they went on the SS United States that it wasn't as luxury feeling as other ships because of the fact that um, it did use more, you know, aluminum and stuff like that as opposed to stuff that could actually burn in a fire. But why did the government pay for this thing? Very simply because Gibbs went to them and said, I'm going to build an ocean liner that is also going to be the fastest troop carrying ship in the world. And they said, tell me more. So he did. And the SS United States, although never used in this capacity, was able to be converted within like 48 or 96 hours into a ship that would carry 14,000 soldiers wherever you wanted them faster than any ship had ever done it in history. The guy was obsessed with horsepower, which I have to admire among other qualities that he had, but the SS United States had a very advanced design hull and had 241,785 shaft horsepower. It could go 35 to 38 knots over the ocean in calm seas. That is about 45 miles an hour. And um, modern cruise ships don't touch that. Modern passenger vessels don't even come close. Um, most modern modern passenger vessels don't have near the horsepower, and they're kind of more bulky and large in terms of their girth to even force their way through the water. But the SS United States set speed records back and forth across the Atlantic, back and forth across the Pacific. It was, by any measure, and still is to this day, this is a ship that was launched in the early 50s. To this day, it is the fastest passenger ship ever built. Ever. Ships have crossed the Atlantic faster and the Pacific faster, but not passenger ships. So to me, uh, uh, kind of a, a look into Gibbs is necessary here to understand the brilliance of this man and also to understand that he didn't need the money. You know, when Gibbs saw Black Saturday happen in Staten Island, when Gibbs saw and read the stories about how the firemen couldn't get water to put these fires out, he wanted to act, and the reason he wanted to act was because as a young man, either when he was in college or just before it, he had conceived the idea 
of a firefighting boat, of a fireboat. Basically, he wanted to build what we would now consider a fireboat. And he was going to use dirigible engines, which were the big, most powerful piston engines in the world at that point, to run the pumps that would fight these fires. And why would anyone need a fireboat in the early 1900s? Well, think of it. Shipping, as it was then, was a, a prime moving way to, to move cargo. But also in New York, um, you had ports that were lined with these warehouse buildings that could catch fire and burn, and they were full of material and people and everything else. So those were fires that could be fought most effectively from the ocean inward as opposed to fighting them on the on the land where you'd have to have low-volume fire hydrants feeding low-volume pumps. If you had a fireboat with these massive pumps on it, you could do real damage in a positive way to a fire shooting from the ocean back into the city. So Gibbs takes this idea of this fireboat and then with the technology that has advanced after World War II sees all the pieces in place to build his fireboat on wheels and have it fight the biggest fires in one of the biggest cities in the world. And that is how the Max Super Pumper system came to be born. Now let's talk about the Super Pumper system itself and its absolutely incredible capabilities. So I think it's easy to admire people like Gibbs because in this instance, um, he was not looking to make a bunch of money. If he was, he would have looked to build a bunch of these, a hundred of these super pumper systems and sell them across the world. He wasn't looking to do that. He was looking to help New York City on its own. So after Black Saturday happens in 1963, there's all these investigations. And again, as I mentioned, you know, they were kind of horrified to figure out the city anyway was how lacking they were in the ability to actually feed water to their firemen to fight these huge fires. So when Gibbs comes to them and projects them, sits down in front of the city and says, listen, I will build you something that is uh, unstoppable, unbelievable, and frankly, nothing like the world has ever seen before. You just got to give me 875,000 bucks to make it happen. And when we sit here in in 2020 and talk about $875,000, you're like, that is the greatest bargain of all time. That was seven million bucks in 1963, 64 money when these conversations were happening. So the city did take a little bit of persuading, mainly because the budget had been set that year. And they heard the arguments, they had the debates, the fire services said, we need this and we need it now. So the city said, okay, we're going to pay, we're going to do a budget, you know, override or whatnot. And so they, they decided to spend the 875000 What they get is the Max Super Pumper system, which was a five-truck system. Okay, so you had five different trucks. You had a central pumping truck, which used a locomotive engine. You had a tender truck full of hoses and manifolds and other gear that the firemen could use to distribute the water. And then three satellite trucks that looked like standard fire engines, but didn't have their own pumping units in them. So they were also kind of there to distribute water, to run lines, and to help uh, get firemen on the scene and, and actually get fires put out. So you had this one single unit that could feed all this stuff at the same time. And we're going to start by talking about the pumping unit. And, you know, Max Max Truck's role in this whole thing was really to provide the rigs that drag this stuff around and to build the trucks themselves. Mac been in business for over 100 years, a very trusted name. They've, you know, they're located in McCooney, Pennsylvania. It made a ton of sense to have Mac as the, the people that supplied the rigs here. And, you know, iconic brand name in American trucking, the whole works. So... 
Mac did not really do the engineering work on this. They they assembled things. They built the trailers that all this stuff went on. But for Mac, their job was to provide the, the grunt force trauma to actually drag this stuff around. So let's talk about the pumping unit. And the keystone of this thing was that pumping unit. It could draw water from eight fire hydrants at one time if it needed to. It could drop lines in the ocean and pull water. And we'll talk about some of the feats of strength that this thing pulled off doing just that, drawing ocean water in and distributing it to put fires out. Um, It could flow 10,000 gallons per minute of water, okay, at low pressure. And then if you wanted to go all the way up to 350 PSI inside these big multi-inch lines, it could still flow nearly 9,000 gallons a minute at 350 PSI. And the high pressure would ultimately be an Achilles heel for this thing. It would be one of the reasons why by the time we get to the 80s, it's not getting used that much, and we'll talk about that when we get there. The tender trucks, the other units, had uh, roof-mounted water cannons on them, the biggest one on that main tender truck I talked about. Now, that particular cannon could throw water 600 feet It could throw it 600 feet straight up. It could throw it 600 feet in a line. It could throw water an eighth of a mile at a fire in whatever direction you wanted. And think about it. Not in volume. Not a a hose we're talking about here. Like garden hose going 600 feet. We're talking gazillions of gallons per minute 600 feet through the air. So it is is pretty astonishing. And the, the motor that ran this whole thing was called a Napier Deltic engine. So... The Napier Deltic engine was developed in World War II. It is an opposed piston engine. It is a two-cycle diesel opposed piston engine. And I would I would encourage you to Google it and look at photos of it because my description of words is going to boggle and scramble your brains. But if you actually look at photos of it, you'll understand how it works. But if you could make a, make a triangle with your fingers and think about it, at each corner of the triangle, there is a set of pistons that are facing each other. And as the engine works, there's a crankshaft. There's three crankshafts, one in each corner of the triangle. And as the engine works, those pistons actually come towards each other to form the combustion chamber. Combustion happens, and they go pushing apart. All the crankshafts are on these these giant gears. They spin these giant gears, and that's how the engine spins the pump. So the cool thing was this engine made 2,400 horsepower, and it was designed during World War II, as I mentioned, to power torpedo boats for the British. After the war, the Napier Deltic was used in shipping, was used to, to power locomotives, uh, anything that needed 2,400 horsepower and probably triple that or quadruple that in torque to move is what the Napier Deltic engine was used for. They're huge and heavy, and that's why you needed this 53-foot trailer-ish to drag it around on. At the end of that engine was a pump, but we'll get to the pump here in a second, of course. That's really what's making the water fly. But without that Napier Deltic engine, this system doesn't exist. So it was turbocharged as well, which is also interesting. The problem with the Napier Deltic, if there was one, was that it consumed 137 gallons of diesel fuel per hour when it was running. And it was deafening. There's a lot of stories of guys that worked on this rig for many years that uh, almost lost their hearing or had a lot of permanent hearing damage from being around it. Um, if you Google pictures of the Mac Super Pumper system and you see the trailer, you'll see the, the size of the unit. You'll see the size of the engine, tens of thousands of pounds. Um, it would spin at a couple thousand RPM and just made a hellacious noise. But it made that grunt power that, uh, that certainly needed, was needed anyway, to, uh, to put the fires out. The trucks that dragged it around, 
they were Mac, as I mentioned, cab over units. Um, they only had a top speed of about 42 miles an hour, which I find interesting. But when you think about it, they're in the city, and they don't. you don't need top-end speed in a city. What you need is quick acceleration and the ability to get this stuff to the fire. So they were likely geared to the moon. Um, they were custom-built. They had a couple of different power takeoff units, one for a priming pump for the water pump, and the other, uh, an air compressor, was run off a of PTO because there was an air compressor that made about 450 PSI needed to actually to actually get the Deltic engine turning before it would light off and run on its own. The custom pump that was on the back of this truck was developed by a company called De Laval that actually made turbine engines, and they basically custom contracted with De Laval to build this pump, which had four massive inlets on the back of it and then eight outlets. So you could run eight different hose lines out of this pump. And, um, you know, the truck and trailer with the pump and the engine on it, a combined weight of about 70,000 pounds. And that was without any water in it. That was just the engine, the cooling system, and the pumping system. Pretty crazy. I mean, that is, uh, that is a lot. So when we talk about the specs of the uh, Mac Super Pumper system, 88 gallons a minute, right? We talked about that at 350 PSI. That's 70,000 pounds of water, give or take, per minute. It's insane. During a fire in the Bronx, firemen laid 7,000 feet of hose to get to a suitable water supply. The truck pumped as though it was three feet from the ocean. So they laid over a mile and a half, give or take, of hose from the truck, laid it in the, I don't know, I'm guessing it was the ocean, either that or a lake or a pond or something. And the truck pulled water 7,000 feet to the pump and then distributed it to everybody. In 1967, this truck responded to a fire at a postal annex in New York City and supplied water to the gun on the tender truck, as we mentioned, that 600-foot cannon, the three satellite trucks, two additional tower ladder trucks, and a portable manifold that ran multiple hand lines to guys that were fighting, physically fighting the fire on the ground holding hoses, all by itself. So this one truck was a, was effectively its own fire station of ability. You know, you 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 had so much volume and you had so much ability to move water with this thing. It replaced a lot of different stuff and allowed you the flexibility to fight these fires in ways you never would have been able to before. The hoses on the truck uh, had been pressure tested to a thousand psi. Operating range was you know three hundred and fifty psi occasionally there are stories of this thing moving 800 psi of water which just is mind numbing when you think about the volume and the size of the hoses modern fire trucks don't do that it is it is not the way it works and i'm going to tell you why in a minute and i guess as i mentioned the hoses on the truck were developed by the navy during world war ii so the other cool thing about this truck is during uh, one in new york they had a pumping system fail for a pumping system that was providing fresh water to the population. Now, they have a ton of these pumping stations because there's millions of people that live in New York City. Even back then, there were millions of people that lived there. One of these pumping stations went down. They ran the super pumper out there, and the super pumper actually worked for I don't know how many days at a constant high uh, maximum capacity, let's call it, moving water as they fixed the pumping station. Now, that pumping station certainly moved more than 10,000 gallons a minute, but this truck stood in there and was able to prevent a crisis by providing at least some fresh water for the residents that were negatively affected by that. Pretty awesome. 
the end came for this truck for a couple different reasons. And for the firefighting reason, we can talk about that high pressure. And the high pressure became a problem when um, fighting fires, when you're shooting 350 PSI at the side of a building, you can basically collapse it with that much pressure. So as we get into the late 70s, early 80s, the fire department is getting a little bit leery of using this thing because they're finding that when they're fighting fires with it, it's collapsing walls and roofs, and it just moves such a volume that the assault of the water itself becomes uh, becomes a problem. So that is one of the reasons, and the other is the financial um, state of the city itself. And for those of you that know a little bit of the history of New York City, you understand that during the late 70s and early 80s, things were horrendous financially for the city of New York to the point where the city was basically bankrupt. They were going to appeal for uh, federal help, and they'd really there was a very good um, possibility that the city was going to actually go bankrupt and go into, into receivership. So when Gerald Ford was the president... Mayor Ed Koch of New York went to Ford and said, hey, um, like, we need help here. And Ford refused the federal government's help, said, sorry, you, you can't you can't do this. Well, we can't do this. And famously, there was a newspaper headline that ran the day after kind of the final moments of this crisis that said Ford to Koch dropped dead. And the city ended up bailing itself out and everything. But the cost of running that truck was one of the other reasons that it started to not leave the station very frequently at the end of the 1970s and into the early 80s. Then the fact then the infrastructure was improved, things were better, there was less of a chance that you're going to run into a dry hydrant, all that kind of stuff. The truck still exists. It's actually at a firefighting museum um, up in the Michigan or Minnesota area, somewhere up there. But you can actually go see this thing. It's in Michigan. That's where it is, located in Michigan. You can go see the pumping unit. I've heard various stories of the different tender units and the other uh, units that were involved in the in the satellite system that they were repurposed and had a long life inside the fire department. But in terms of the actual pumper, it is still in existence. It just doesn't do any work anymore. The museum in Michigan that has it is a firefighting and toy museum. You can go up there and Google it. You can go see it. But the Max Super Pumper was the firefighting truck from from heaven that was designed to fight hell, designed by one of the most brilliant American minds of the late 20th century that you may have never heard of before. So there you have it. That is this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this look into one of the most unique machines ever developed that still exists, albeit in retirement, up there in Michigan. We'll be back with more mechanical history, racing stories, and good stuff from the world of automobilia on the next episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. Thanks for listening, and thanks for dorking out with me.